You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thanks for coming tonight to SF in SF, and we have authors Howard Hendricks and Scott Sigler here, and Terry Besson will be moderating the evening's uh, the evening event. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce to you uh, Ellen Goodman. She's the executive director of Variety Children's Charity of Northern California, in whose lovely preview room and reception area we're holding tonight's event. And we are very fortunate in that the charity has granted us the use of this room for these SF in, in SF events twice a month. So I'd like to introduce Ellen, who's going to say just a few words about the charity and what they do. Ellen. Hi, everyone. Thank you. So my name's Ellen Goodman. I'm the executive director of Variety Children's Charity of Northern California. We are a worldwide organization. We have 52 chapters in 14 countries. And last year gave away $1.5 billion to children in need. And those children in need are children who would be critically ill or who have some sort of developmental disabilities, either special needs or physical disabilities. And I'll tell you a little story about how we got to be a charity and how we got to be in entertainment. But uh, first, I just want to say entertainment is the heart of our organization, and that is a perfect fit for us to host these events. Uh, we were founded in the theater business uh, in a movie theater in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania in 1927. We have been working with theater, entertainment, entertainers, literary entertainment, uh, as well as uh, art. And so it just seemed like a perfect way to be able to merge the two communities together. So uh, for more information, you can locate us on our website at varietync for Northern California.org. So we have 52 chapters in 14 countries. Every single chapter is an independent and individual chapter, and the money that we raise locally services all of our children locally. So we'll backtrack just really quickly for a second. So a baby is left in a theater. It's 1927. It's prohibition. And guys own the Sheraton Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they have a drinking club, and they name it Variety Club for Variety Entertainment Magazine, and it's Christmas Eve, and they're drinking, and a baby's left in a theater with a note that says, I heard theater people were nice people. Please take care of my baby. And that's what the theater guys did. But actually, the community took care of the baby. Money poured into the theater, and they started to have theater events to raise even more money. The child went eventually to the orphanage, and the money supplied the orphanage. And then what they did was they traveled around the U.S. through the theater circuit, they went from Pittsburgh to Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. We opened in 1947 by theater owners, and we still have theater events. So an event like this evening and the series that we have monthly here is exactly what we're talking about as far as having and hosting events. The children that were in orphanages in 1927, there are no more orphanages in the domestic U.S. Today we have foster care, and we have um, housing for shelters, we have, uh, unfortunately, children are abandoned in hospitals and on streets and in corners and trash cans. Um, so the foster program, we have facilities where children are residential programs. Those are the children that we would be helping us around special needs, whether they're developmental, 
or whether they are just uh, either income or marginalized needs. And then the program that we run for our children who are ill is a cancer fund that we run out of the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital where money goes directly to the families. And those children are 12 and under. They either have neonatal emergencies and complications or cancer complications. And social workers access an ATM machine and give families direct cash. No red tape, not a whole lot of paperwork. Um, we were very fortunate last year that 18 cents of every dollar was spent on admin costs and everything else got to go to our programs. So we feel really successful around that. So again, you can find out more information, varietync.org. I want to thank Rena and Jacob. I'd like to thank our authors here tonight and for anyone who um, was able to get this on the air. So appreciate it. Thanks. Welcome, everybody. Is this working? Yeah, yeah okay. All right. Uh, welcome to SFNSF. This is, uh, we've been going about a year. We've been going here, what, Jacob, five or six months? Yeah. And uh, it gets more and more interesting as it goes on. We have a couple of extraordinary writers tonight. And we're going to do our usual, which is focus on literature, start with literature, and then we're going to have a discussion and talk about piss and moan about science fiction like we usually do. <laughs> and uh, so it's going to be the, the usual evening. Our first reader and our first author is a rather extraordinary science fiction author, Scott Sigler, who's also cons uh, probably considered somewhat of a horror author as well as a science fiction author. And he's an author who turned publishing around. And most time, a, um, a book gets published, and then it gets uh, put on an audio book or a podcast. Scott sort of backed into publishing uh, in a very modern and new way and did it in uh, rather extraordinarily uh, by podcasting his first two or three novels. Is, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And also um, uh, got picked up by Sirius Radio, which is uh, the um, satellite radio. And has written, uh, I think you'll find his books out there. There's, uh, they're horror novels with a science fiction theme, Ancestors about the dangers of genetic engineering, and Earthcore, which I believe was your first novel. Correct. Mm -hmm. About the dangers of digging too deep. So <laughs> uh, with that, let's uh, hear Scott read. All right. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. This is kind of neat. And I'm going to read from uh, what was the third podcast novel, which is called Infected. And that's the one that will be my next book to be printed. And that's going to be out from Crown Books on April 1st. <clears throat> now, as he mentioned, there's like a hard science, a science fiction background. But these are basically modern day stories. They're horror stories, except instead of all that supernatural woo-woo stuff, I pull that out and put in some hard science underneath it and, and see what shakes up. Prologue. This is the place. Alita Garcia stumbled through the thick winter woods, blood marking her long path, a bright red comet trail against the blazing white snow. Her hand shook violently. She could barely make a fist out of her talon-like fingers, nearly numb, wet from the big clumps of snow that fell thick and fast all around her melting almost as soon as they hit her skin. When the time came, could she even pull the trigger on Lewis's old revolver? A searing pain in her stomach brought her thoughts back to the mission, the divine mission. Something was wrong. Well, fuck, it was all wrong. 
and had been from the first moment she'd started scratching at her belly and her elbow. But something was even more wrong, something inside. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Somehow, she knew that. She looked behind her, along the bloody path through the snow, eyes searching for pursuit. She saw nothing. She'd spent years in fear of the INS, but it was different now. They didn't want to deport her. Now they wanted her dead. Her hands and legs oozed blood drawn by scratching branches. Her left foot bled thanks to the shoe she'd lost some time ago. The snow's thin, jagged crust made every step a cutting crunch. She didn't know why her nose bled. It just did. But all those things were trivial compared to the blood she vomited every few minutes. She had to go on. Had to go on. Find the place. The place where it would all begin. Alita saw two massive oak trees reaching out to each other like centuries-old lovers, a freeze frame of perpetually denied longing. She thought of her husband Louis again and thought of the baby. She pushed those thoughts away. She could think about that no more than she could think of the nasty thing on her belly. She'd done what she had to do. Three bullets for Louis, one for the baby, one for the man with the car. That left one bullet. She stumbled then tripped. She reached out to try and stop her fall, but her bloody hands punched through the knee-deep snow. Her frigid hand hit an unseen rock, bringing more flaring, cold, numb pain, and she dropped headfirst through the white crust. She came up, wet snow and ice clinging to her exhausted face. She threw up, again, blood gushing from her mouth to splash bright red against the white snow. Blood and a few wet chunks of something black. Inside it hurt. It hurt so bad. She started to get up, then stopped and stared at the twin oak trees. They dominated a natural clearing, bare branches a sprawling, skeletal canopy at least 50 meters across. A few stubborn dead leaves clung to the branches, fluttering slightly in the winter wind. She hadn't known what she'd been looking for, just that she had to walk into the woods, deep into the woods, where people didn't go. This was it. This was the place. Such a long journey to wind up here. She'd taken the man's car back in Jackson. The man had said he wasn't La Migra, wasn't the immigration police, but those people had chased her all her life and she knew better. He had stared at the gun, said he wasn't La Migra, said he was just looking for a liquor store. Alita knew he was lying. She had seen it in his eyes. She had left him there, taken his car and driven through the night, then abandoned the car in Saginaw. There she hopped a freight train and just started watching for big woods. As long as she kept moving mostly north, it didn't matter. Moving north, really, was the story of her life. The farther north you went, the fewer questions people asked. Childhood in Monclova, Mexico, teenage years in Pedras Negras, then at 19 she snuck across the border and started moving through Texas and beyond. Seven years of working, hiding, lying, always moving north. She'd met Lewis in Chickasaw, Oklahoma. Then together they'd worked their way through America. St. Louis, Chicago, joining her mother in Grand Rapids, Michigan. A brief change heading east when Lewis found regular construction work in Jackson. Then the itching started. And not long after, the urge to move north again. Not just an urge, as it had been before, The itching made it a mission. But finally, after 27 years of life, she could stop moving. 
She stared at the oak trees, the way they reached out to each other, like lovers, like a husband and wife. She couldn't stop thinking of him anymore, and couldn't stop thinking of her Lewis. But it was okay now, because she could join him. She looked back one more time. The thick falling snow was already covering the comet path, turning the red to a fuzzy pink, soon to be all white again. La Migra was looking for her. They wanted to kill her. But unless they were only 15 minutes behind, her trail would soon be gone forever. Alita turned again to stare at the trees one more time. The image, a glorious sculpture in her brain. This is the place. She pulled the old thirty-eight revolver out of her pocket and pressed the cold barrel against her temple. When she pulled the trigger, her cold fingers worked just fine. Chapter 1. Captain Jinky. FM 92.5 morning call in line. What's on your mind? I killed them all. Marcia Stubbins groaned. Another I'm so funny asshole trying to take the weird route to get on the air. Did you now? That's nice, sir. I have to get on with Captain Jinky. The world has to know. Marcia nodded. It was 6.15 a.m., just about time for the loonies and the jerks to roll out of bed to hear Captain Jinky and the morning Zoolanders goofing off on the air and feeling they had to be part of the show. This happened every morning, every single morning. Captain Jinky has to know what, sir? Has to know about the triangles. The voice is soft. The words came between big breaths like someone trying to talk after a workout. Right, the triangles. Sounds more like a personal problem, sir. Don't patronize me, you stupid cunt. Hey, you don't get to scream at me like that just because I'm a phone screener, okay? Well, I'm a phone screener, okay, yeah, all right. It's the triangles. We have to do something. Put me on with Jinky or I'll come down there and put a fucking knife in your eye. Uh-huh, Marcia said, a knife in my eye, right. I just killed my whole family. Don't you get it? I have blood all over me. I had to because they told me to. This isn't funny, you idiot. And by the way, you're the third mass mar murderer that's called here this morning. If you call back, I'm calling the cops. The man hung up. She sensed he was getting ready to say something, to scream at her again right up until she said the word cops. Then he hung up fast. Marcia rubbed her face. She'd wanted this internship, but who didn't? Captain Jinky had, had one of Ohio's highest-rated morning shows. But man, this phone screening gig with the crazy calls day after day, so many retards out there who thought they were funny. She rolled her shoulders and looked at the phone. All the lines were lit up. Seemed everybody in the city wanted to get on the air. Marcia sighed and punched line two. In Cleveland, Ohio, there's a room on the 17th floor of the AT&T Huron Road Building, formerly known as the Ohio Bell Building. This room does not exist. At least what's in the room does not exist. On maps, building records, and to most people who work on the 17th floor, room 1712B is just a foul storage room. A foul storage room that's always locked. People are busy. No one asks. Nobody cares. It's like millions of other locked rooms and office buildings all over the U.S., but, of course, it's not a foul storage room. Room 1712B doesn't exist because it's a black room, and black rooms don't exist. The government tells us so. To get inside this black room, you have to run a gamut of security screens. First, talk to the 17th floor guard. His desk happens to be just 15 feet from 1712B. He's got security clearance from the NSA, by the way, and is perfectly willing to cap your ass. Second, 
Slide your key card through the slot next to the door. The card has a built-in code key that changes every 10 seconds, <clears throat> matching an algorithm based on the time of day. This one makes sure only the right people can enter at the right times. Third, type in your personal code into the keypad. Fourth, press your thumbprint onto a small gray plate just above the door handle <clears throat> so a fancy little device can check your thumbprint and your pulse. Truth be told, the fingerprint scanner isn't worth a crap and can be easily faked. But the pulse check is handy, just in case you're a tad overly excited because someone has a gun to your head, a gun that was probably used to kill the aforementioned security guard. If you successfully navigate these challenges, 1712B opens to reveal the black room and the things inside the black room that also do not exist. Among those goodies is a Norris Insight STA-7800, a supercomputer designed to perform mass surveillance on a mind-boggling scale. The Norris Insight is fed by fiber optic lines from beam splitters, which are installed in fiber optic trunks carrying telephone calls and internet data into and out of Ohio. This techno jargon means that those lines carry all digital communication in Ohio, including just about every phone call made in and out of the Midwest. Oh, you're not from the Midwest? Don't worry. There's 15 black rooms spread across America. Plenty for everyone. This machine monitors key phrases <clears throat> like nuclear bomb, cocaine shipment, or the ever-popular kill the president. The system automatically records every call, tens of thousands at a time, using voice recognition software to turn each conversation into a text file. The system then scans a text file for those potentially naughty words. If no words are found, the system dumps the audio. If the words are found, however, the audio file and the voice-to-text transcript is instantly sent to the person tasked with monitoring communication containing those words. <clears throat> yeah, so every call is monitored. Every single call. For terrorism words, drug words, corruption words, all the stuff you'd expect. <clears throat> but due to some rather violent cases that had popped up in recent weeks, a secret presidential order added a new word to the national security watch list. And in this case, secret wasn't some document that people discussed in hushed tones with Beltway reporters. This time, secret meant that nothing was written down, no record of any kind, anywhere. And what was that new word? Triangles. The system listened for the word triangles in association with words like murder, killing, and burn. Two of those words happened to be used in a certain call to a certain guest line for the Captain Jinky in the Morning Zoolander's Morning Show. The system translated that call to text and in analyzing the text found the words triangles and killed in close proximity. Put a fucking knife in your eye didn't hurt either. The system marked the call, encrypted it, and shipped it off to its pre-assigned analyst location. That location happened to be yet another secret room, this one located at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And when a room at the CIA headquarters is secret, that's some pretty serious black op shit. The pre-assigned analyst listened to the call three times. She knew after the first listening that this was the real deal, but she listened twice more anyways, just to be sure. Then she placed a call of her own to Murray Longworth, Deputy Director of the CIA. She didn't know exactly what it meant to have murder and triangles in close proximity, but she knew how to spot a bogus call, and this one seemed authentic. The call's origin? The home of one Martin Brubaker of Toledo, Ohio. That's, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> thank you thank you for the save I appreciate that I've even made Howard cough because of the horrible noise my throat is made for an hour better
Can somebody get <laughs> Thank you so much. So much for Mr. Clevel's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, podcast that, pal. Yeah. Welcome to the Tuberculosis <laughs> Ward <laughs> podcast. That's some sexy talk right there is what All that right. is. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.